Father, thank you for this morning. Once again, in all seriousness, we are thankful to be reminded through musical worship just how we should respond to you and how great you are and all the great things you've done for us and even giving us that particular gift. We are very thankful. We are encouraged and we do, in fact, want to sing uh, not only to you. We want to sing, as the Bible says, to one another so that we might be encouraged, so that we might be built up in the faith, so that we might seek to glorify you ourselves. You've given us so many good gifts. Thank you for giving us your word and your Holy Spirit so that our lives might be transformed for the glory of Christ. And we pray in His name. Amen. Well, I hold in my hand this morning what's called the Positive Bible. The Positive Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Scriptures that in, scripture that inspires, nurtures, and heals. And one thing I am positive of this morning is that I won't be using this for my sermon. I'm positive that I won't be using it for my sermon because the text I want to preach from is Matthew 26, and it's not in this Bible. Because today we're going to be talking about the trial of Jesus. And I'll invite you to turn in your Bible unless you have the positive Bible. You can file that in file 13 on your way out. Matthew 26 is the trial of Jesus, and I guess I understand why it didn't make the cut in the positive Bible, because it's horrific. It is unjust. It is a bad, bad thing, the trial of Jesus. I would like to suggest later that if I were ever to write a positive Bible, uh, you should fire me first. And uh, if I were to do that, that I would want to include it, but we'll talk about that later. We're going to look, look at and talk about the trial of Jesus in Matthew chapter 26. And if you're new to Omaha Bible Church, we're studying the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ according to Matthew. And we're in the 26th chapter, and we are going to look at his trial the trial begins in verse 57, but before we actually begin reading it, if I might just remind you that what is led up to this immediately is Jesus being betrayed by Judas, his disciple, and then uh, having the Jewish religious leaders uh, come to him under the, the stealth of darkness, accompanied by Roman military, uh, and coming them to capture him and then to take him and to try him. It is a dark scene, it is a dark scenario, it is not very uplifting at all on so many different levels, but at the same time we will see that it is reason for us to worship Christ and it is altogether positive on a whole other level. If you would, let's jump right in and if you join me in verse 57 of Matthew 26, we read, those who had seized Jesus... Verse 47 would tell us it's the religious leaders, it's the Roman soldiers accompanying them. Those who had seized Jesus, in verse 57, led him away to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. And if we were looking at this chronologically, we would have to say Matthew actually leaves a component out. For whatever reason, Matthew uh, it didn't serve Matthew's purpose in writing under inspiration to include it here. But chron chronologically, Jesus is captured after being betrayed by Judas, and then he is taken to 
Annas. And if we looked at John's account, we would see he's taken to Annas the high priest. In Matthew 26, verse 57, we see he's taken to Caiaphas the high priest. And I don't want to get hung up on that other than to say, uh, so you're not confused by two high priests. Um, we don't know exactly how it all worked out back then, but uh, you do have Annas, the high priest, who's been the high priest for some time now, and you have Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who is also called the high priest. Now, exactly how that worked out, we don't know for certain because the Bible doesn't say. Some tell us, some suggest that uh, Annas had been the high priest for all of these years, and he really is still the power broker, and you have Caiaphas ruling under him as high priest. Others would say, no, that's not how it is. Uh, The Romans uh, worked better and liked Caiaphas better So they were instrumental in deposing Annas and they're working with Caiaphas at this point in time because they're under Roman rule. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how it's happened. You have Annas the high priest, you have Caiaphas the high priest. Jesus is captured, he is taken, and he's taken to Annas, and Annas sends Jesus to his son-in-law Caiaphas. This makes sense because in John's account, we learn even earlier in John chapter 18, verse 14, that Caiaphas had it in his mind and he told the Jews that what they needed was to have one of the people killed. So he has an execution agenda already and this is going to serve his ends. Well, again, let's make sure we know who these folks are we're talking about. We have Caiaphas the high priest, we have the scribes, We have the elders. Mark includes in the description the chief priest. That would have included perhaps even Annas. It would have included the commander of the temple guard. It would have included uh, the steward of the temple. It would have included three temple treasurers and perhaps even more. All of that to say. Footnotes or cliff note version. They take Jesus to the religious leaders. They take Jesus to the Jewish religious leaders who would have represented high class leaders socially, middle-class leaders socially, who would have represented the Pharisees, the religious right, and the Sadducees, the religious left. All of that to say, you have an amazing, unprecedented ecumenical gathering. They are unified. They are unified. This is bipartisanship on a religious level that is unmatched. They're together on this one. And the tragedy is, we know what is so uniting. They're united in their opposition to Jesus as the Messiah. But before we get into that, if you would, for the next couple of minutes, as a teaching tool, if you would pretend with me. Pretend with me for the sake of effect and understanding that we don't know that these are bad guys. Let's just pretend like they are on the inside who they claim to be on the outside. The high priest, that's, that's a legitimate office. Uh, and all those involved in managing and, and leading in the temple worship, uh, that's, that's legitimate. So let's pretend that these are God-fearing, Christ-exalting, Bible-believing leaders. In fact, just for the sake of effect, let's assume that we can even call them Christians. Now, I realize that in the book of Acts is where we first see followers of Jesus called Christians. Okay, So we don't call these guys Christians. But if we can just be real literal, again, for the sake of really, I think, feeling the force of this, we can call them Christians. 
in a sense, because the word Christ in the New Testament is the, old, the word for the Old Testament word Messiah. And every single one of these individuals, down to the last one, would have said they're followers of Messiah, of Mashiach. That they're anticipating, that they're waiting, that they're teaching their children, that they're all about Messiah. They're all about Christ. Let's call them Christians. Even though we know that technically isn't used till later. I think if we do that, we will see that what happens here is far more outrageous than we would otherwise. Sometimes I I try to purposely read the Bible, read the gospel accounts, and, and read as if I've never read it before. Not knowing how it ends. Maybe sometimes even forgetting about the greater context, and I know that would be wrong in one sense, but just reading and thinking, okay, let's just assume these guys really are who they say they are on the outside. And they're sending for Jesus. Well, why would they be sending for Jesus? They're sending for Jesus so that they can worship Him. After all, they're Christians. They're sending for Jesus so that they might learn from Him. After all, they're, 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 they're followers of Messiah. They've been memorizing, learning passages about Him. They say they're expecting Him. They say they're all about Messiah. With that in mind, I think it helps us to see the grotesque nature of what actually happens. Well, I hate to do it, but now that I kind of have you where I want you, so to speak, ready to keep reading, it's as if the camera goes off of this scenario and turns away just for a moment, and it turns away to Peter. So we're just going to, just for a moment, before we move on, look at verse 58, but Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. And then the camera goes back. We'll get to Peter later, not today. The only thing I guess I would suggest is it's probably a good thing in the providence of God that that all of this didn't happen in the 21st century because if it did, knowing Peter, based upon what we've seen, he would have been, you know, M16 packing, you know, missile shooting, and he would have just killed them all, and it wouldn't turn out the way it was supposed to turn out anyway. But anyway, that's just a little to lighten things up a little bit. Peter would have wanted to get all of these guys, and he would have if he could have. We'll get to Peter later. Okay, remember, let's assume these are good guys. High priest, all of those who surround him, they should be anticipating Jesus. This is a good thing. This is what they've been waiting for for years and years and years and years. Verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. This is, this, this is, this is all wrong. This, this, nothing could be more perverted than this. This is diabolical. This, this, this isn't how the story is supposed to go if these men are on the inside what they say they are on the outside. I mean, th- th- this just couldn't be more wrong. This reminds me of, of, of reading one of our, our children's books that they have uh, where they tell these familiar stories and you know how it's supposed to go and they change the whole thing. That book is funny and it's very entertaining. This is very different. It's not funny and it's not entertaining, but the story is not going the way it's supposed to go if these men are on the inside who they say they are on the outside. This this should just be amazing to us. What? I mean, verse 59, here's, here's how verse 59 should read, if they really are who they say they are. Now, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying 
Here's what I, here's how I'll do it. Kept trying to see the amazing ways that Jesus fulfilled all of the Christological Old Testament prophecies and they kept seeking ways that they might worship Him more fervently and faithfully. Right? This is scandalous altogether. They keep trying, it really says, to obtain false testimony against Jesus so they might put Him to death. This is scandalous because of who they are. This is scandalous because of what they're supposed to stand for. Truth, justice, divine truth. This is scandalous because of who Jesus is. The, the, the one who, who was the perfect God-man, who met all of the requirements, who's been nothing other than loving, who's been doing all of the right things. And just to make it more clear and further expose their wicked hearts, look with me at verse 60. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. So much for the, you know, the, the inherent goodness of the human heart. Many false witnesses. This is going to go on for some time. We don't know how long. People just keep coming. They keep coming and saying untruthful things about Jesus in hopes that it will lead to execution. The good thing about that verse that we just read, it not only shows us something about the wickedness of the human heart, it also shows us something about the greatness of Christ and the goodness of Christ. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. In the providence of God, I'm glad many false witnesses came forward. False witness after false witness after false witness, and none of them had a legitimate accusation against Jesus. Ah, you know, even a passage like this that seems so negative actually ends up being a positive because it just reinforces the First Peter 3.18s of the world. The just for the unjust. This is just further affirming the righteousness of Christ in the providence of God. And that does make this actually a good thing. Well, even though there are many false witnesses, it's not enough for the officials to move forward. They're looking for credible, incredible witnesses, I guess. I mean, they at least want to have a semblance of justice before they go to the Romans and say, here, here's our case, now execute him. And so they're looking for Credible, incredible witnesses. They're looking for false testimony, but it has to look legitimate. And so the kangaroo court continues in verse 60. But later on, again, I wonder how much later. But, but later on, you get the idea this is going on for some time, which is pathetic, but it's Christ exalting because he holds up. Two came forward and said, verse 61, this man stated, Jesus I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. It's the best they could do. And, and while it sounds familiar, it's not altogether true. It's not altogether right. Keep looking at that verse, and I'll read what Jesus actually said. If you keep looking at verse 61, where it says, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days, listen to what John 2.19 actually says. Destroy this temple, speaking of himself, and in three days I will raise it up. You destroy it, I will raise it up. So they're taking part of that 
perhaps they're taking part of what Jesus talked about in Matthew 23 and 24 about the destruction of the temple, and they're kind of fitting it together. You know, kind of like when people wrongly represent God, maybe even people you know, friends of yours, and they say, well, you know, there's that verse in the Bible that says, and then they quote the verse and it doesn't exist. Well, you know what? It's a little bit like that, although it's not codified in Scripture yet. They're just misquoting Jesus like people misquote Jesus today. Misrepresenting Him. To the degree that you might want to jot this down in the margin of verse 61, Mark 14.59 says, Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. So you've got a couple people, so there's legitimacy there because they're agreeing with one another. But even there, they weren't really agreeing with each other. But it was the best. It was the most credible, incredible testimony they could come up with. And now they think, okay, we've got something that we think the Romans will buy off on. Maybe this will stick. I imagine Caiaphas is angry at this point in time. It's not enough to convict Jesus, though, from what we know. It may have been bad for him to say such a thing. Even a crime to destroy the temple. Yeah, that's a, that's a high-handed crime but still enough to execute him? It doesn't seem so. So Caiaphas is going to push. Caiaphas is going to try to get Jesus to talk and say something self-incriminating. I take it that's what's going on here. Verse 62, if you look with me, you'll see that it says, the high priest stood up. Some commentators say this is probably out of the ordinary. He's upset now to the point where he's standing up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? Say something so you'll, you'll be guilty so we can make this stick against you. Why don't you say something? And then Jesus, verse 63, but Jesus kept silent. Don't you, don't you like Jesus? He is in charge. <laughs> I love it. I just love to read the Gospels and I love to just admire Jesus who's totally in charge. They're trying to get Him to say the wrong thing. They're making demands of Him. He says nothing. Not just so we will think He's cool and say, you know what, I like Jesus. I take it He's fulfilling prophecy even here. We read Isaiah 53 earlier. Being led away like a lamb to slaughter but not saying anything. The actual verse is Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. It's all happening according to plan. Verse 63 goes on to say, And the high priest said to him, I adjure you, I charge you, I demand of you, I adjure you by the living God. So now this is a, a an official religious oath. You're required to answer that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And remember, the Christ. Christ is the same word for Messiah. It's the New Testament word for the Old Testament reality of Messiah. You tell us if you're the anointed king, the promised king or not. I demand it of you. And we know Caiaphas obviously isn't looking to, to get educated here. 
He's not objectively looking for answers or information. He just wants to get Jesus on something so he can execute him. But it is interesting, he gives him this, this official command. I order you to speak. You have to appreciate the irony too. The high priest, Caiaphas, adjuring, demanding under divine oath. The high priest, who's called in Hebrews the eternal high priest. That's where it's nice to know and not read this as if this is the only thing you know. On the other level, he's the eternal high priest. And it just makes all of this all the more perverted. Saying this to Jesus? Now, if Jesus refuses to answer, he's breaking the law. If he denies it, he's a liar, and then he certainly isn't the divine Messiah. If he affirms it, he's dead. Basically, is what it comes down to, right? And it's just like Jesus to give a great answer. I mean, this is just a softball. And Jesus just nails it and hits it out of the park. I mean, this... I like Jesus. This is just, this is awesome. Verse 64. Jesus said to him, you said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you. We'll just stop there for a second. As if to say, yes, I have to agree with what you said, but you know what? It's, it's, it's not how I would say it. It's not quite right. As one commentator put it, I would not have put it that way, but since you do, I can't deny it. But, you know, Jesus just gives a better answer. He's not going to, he's not going to allow Caiaphas to say what he says with his perverted, twisted interpretation of what he means by what he says without setting the record straight. And I, I just so even more love Jesus in light of what he says and his wisdom and his profundity. Nevertheless, I tell you, look at verse 64. Hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. (laughs) Let me read it again and remind you of something. Remember earlier on, it was in Matthew 7, you don't need to remember that, but earlier on when Jesus would teach, He stood out head and shoulders above everybody else and the people who listened to Jesus teach were amazed because he didn't talk like all the other religious leaders. When he spoke, he spoke as one having what? Authority. Just think how this would have sounded. He is talking to Caiaphas, the high priest, and he basically says, yeah, I guess on one level I agree with you and you're right, but let me really set the record straight. Boom! With authority. I wish we could watch it on DVD. Awesome. What's he getting at? The Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power? He's talking about himself? There at the right hand of God? With the power of God? He's claiming divine messiahship, no doubt, quoting the Old Testament that, that Caiaphas is supposed to believe and know. And then coming on the clouds of heaven? Divine authority, 
judgment. Most would believe he's, he's making allusions to, he's referencing two passages, Psalm 110 and Daniel chapter 7. You can turn to either one of those or both of those if you'd like. They're just both slam dunk passages. I mean, they, they're just phenomenal passages. Let me read those two passages to you. And it just is so good for Jesus to say what he says here because he's making it clear, I am no one's puppet. I am no one's politician. I, I, I am not here to somehow uh, meet your needs in your, your view of Jesus or Messiah. I am the divine Messiah, the King. And not only am I the divine Messiah, the King, I am coming to judge punks like you. You are nothing. Oh, listen to these texts. These are great. Daniel 7.13 says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, I take it God the Father, and was presented before him. So he is there with God the Father. And to him was given dominion. He's talking to the high priest. Glory and a kingdom. This is Messiah stuff. That all the peoples, oh, now it's universal dominion, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. This is fantastic. His dominion, His rulership, His sovereignty is an everlasting dominion. You don't don't get that if you're a mere human Messiah. It's an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus has given Him that stuff? You know? Psalm 110, familiar to you, no doubt. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Here you are with me, the place of privilege. And it's just a matter of time when those who oppose you will be under your feet. you got to love Jesus. This is impressive. Jesus is saying, I'm that one. I am the sovereign king. I am the sovereign judge. This is masterful. Jesus is masterful in all of this. (laughs) My notes just say at the top in as big a font as I could justify, I love this. Which should be, I, I love Jesus Christ. I mean, it, this is so good to see. Well, Jesus didn't have a problem being clear. You know, that, that's kind of the trendy thing right now that you can't understand the Bible and clarity is highly overrated, as one influential writer has said. You know, based upon the response that Jesus gets... I don't think Jesus has a problem with clarity. I don't think you should think Jesus has a problem with clarity either. He knows exactly what he's saying. Verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes. You do that if if there was some extreme uh, anger or frustration or if you hear blasphemy, which obviously should make you frustrated or angry if you're the high priest. So he tears his robes and said, He has blasphemed. He's outraged. 
And by the way, if Jesus has blasphemed, the word blasphemy means to lie, and in religious context, it's used to, to say something that is not true about God. It's slandering God. If he has blasphemed legitimately, truly, he should die under Old Testament law. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. The one who blasphemes in the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Now we know that he doesn't. But he should be. If this is legitimate blasphemy, he should be put to death. Now what's kind of interesting, and I don't want to put too much weight into this, but just to, if it's true, show further perversion amongst these Christians, the Jews had adopted a tradition at this point in time, from what I read. And this tradition said, you're killed if you blaspheme, but you do have to say the name of God in your blasphemous statement. Or it's not truly, genuinely blasphemy. I don't know why they did that, because I I think it's adding to Scripture, and they shouldn't have added that little caveat. Who knows why it happened? According to Jewish law recorded in the Mishnah, this was incorrect for him to say it was blasphemy. Blasphemy involved the use of the sacred name of God, the name we transliterate, Yahweh. The Mishnah is explicit on this. The blasphemer is not culpable unless he pronounces the name itself. If that's what's going on here, it just shows that it's all the more perverse. Irregardless, it's a disaster. They're unjust, doing the wrong thing. It's as if to say, oh yes, we know all that, but again, don't confuse us with the facts. We know what we believe. Verse 65 goes on. If you look with me, you'll see. It says, what further need do we have of witnesses? This can stop now. It's been going on for too long. Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, he deserves death. And we say, what do you mean he deserves death? He, he, after what he's done, he's submitted to the law. He, he's helped people. He's loved people. He's done everything to a T. He deserves death. He fits the prophetic description of Messiah. He deserves death. But it's as if they are saying, if they were speaking in today's language, yeah, but that's not who Jesus is to me. The facts are the facts. And Jesus doesn't have a problem with clarity. This is who Messiah is going to be. Text after text after text after text. Clear, 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 clear. They meet him face to face. He's a blasphemer. Kill him. That's not who Jesus is to me. Or perhaps if they were living today, they would say, well, that's not the Jesus we believe in because we believe in the historical Jesus. Which translates, we don't like the Jesus of the Bible, so we came up with our own version. He deserves death? Verse 67. Then he spat in his face. Then they spat or spit in his face and beat him with their fists and others slapped him and said, while blindfolded according to Mark, Prophesy to us, you Christ, you Messiah, who is the one who hit you? Blindfold him and say, all right, tell us, tell us who. They're just trivializing the whole thing. Who is that if you're so smart, you're divine? 
I mean, we read that, we say, that, 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 that's horrible. We read that and we say, this is outrageous. I've never had anyone spit in my face. I hope it never happens, but I've been punched in the face before and it's not good. But the comparison is kind of irrelevant. Number one, I deserve to be punched in the face. (laughs) And number two, you know what? It's ultimately not even about that. Ultimately, it's about the fact that they met the true Messiah and did this to Him. That's what it's about. That's what's so outrageous about this. What's so outrageous is is what John says in John 1.11. He came to His own... And those who were his own did not receive him. That's a really nice way to say it too, by the way. If Peter were writing John's gospel, I don't think he would have written it like that. His own did not receive him. Yeah, they didn't receive him all right. Remember, this is what If I define the term in a certain way, this is what Christians did to Jesus. That's important and helpful to know. And I don't want to take away from what we're seeing here historically, so we'll keep talking about that in a moment. But that's important for us to even realize and know because we live in a Christian nation, quote, unquote. I never call it that. I don't like that. But on a certain level, we say this is a Christian nation. After all, we just spent $500 billion celebrating Christmas. We are really committed to the birth of Christ, aren't we? We called it Christmas and we spent $500 billion. Man, if any nation should be called a Christian nation, it's us. If anybody is committed to Messiah, it's the United States of America. We we just spent a fortune on celebrating how much we love Him and how great He is. Let's not let the point escape us that we can say we're Christians and not be Christians. I can say that I'm a Christian leader, Bible teacher, pastor, and it doesn't mean I am. I can quote Bible verses, no theology, and it doesn't mean I'm legitimate. Same is true for you. You can say you're a Christian... You live in this great Christian nation and we're so committed to Jesus. It doesn't mean you are. They were followers of Messiah. And this is what they did. And these weren't just the leaders. These, just, these weren't just the guys who attended the Bible studies. They led them. Back to the positive Bible. I am positive that as horrific as an event as this has been, that the trial of Jesus belongs in the positive Bible. And whether you own one of these or not, by the way, I've used mine as an illustration now. It's for sale. (laughs) I spent a dollar on it. Shipping was more than the actual Bible, but you know what? I'd spend four bucks for a good illustration anytime. All joking aside, 
Whether you have one of these or not, you have a Bible and you have a, you have a, a perspective of Christ and you have a, a theology and an understanding. Make sure you leave the trial of Jesus in your Bible or in your life. Make sure you leave the bad stuff in because the bad stuff is actually ultimately in the providence of God and the grace of God, the good stuff, right? We got to keep it in there because as he was silent, it was because he was being led away like a sheep to slaughter in the very text we read earlier so that he could die for us so that He could justify us, declare us righteous. It's right there in Isaiah 53. He is doing what He's doing here voluntarily so that He can be the very one who secures our justification. This is, therefore, part of the good news according to Matthew. Don't take the bad news out because ultimately in the end it's good news. As much as we might be troubled by this happening to our Lord and the one that we love, Christ is a great Savior. And to think that He was doing these things on behalf of us, that this is a personal thing. This is a personal thing for His sheep out of love for us keeping silent, out of love for us not telling His Father to send all the angels down and wipe everybody out. Perfect control, perfect devotion to His Father, Perfect love for us, even amidst all of it. He's great. He is worthy of our worship, worthy of our praise. Pray with me, if you would. Father, thank You for Christ. Thank You for the the fact that we do see the trial of Jesus as horrific as it was. Ultimately, in Your perfect grace, as a positive thing. It was according to plan. It was a good thing. It causes us to want to worship You. We are so thankful for a great Savior and we have a burden to tell as many people as we possibly can in as many places as we can possibly be or go about how great He is and the great salvation that is found in Him. May that be the very thing that we are consumed with more and more as we meditate upon His great person and His great work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.